Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. I'm excited to be with you guys uh, tonight. I always am. But I was telling some of the teams earlier, when we're, when we're able to take a book of God's Word, um, which is 66 books put together in, in one volume, uh, when we're able to just walk through a book of the Bible together and, and, and not rush and just take our time and really see what the Word of God alone can do, which is to reveal truth and, and to bring transformation to our lives. And so uh, it's exciting to do that with you. Um, if, if you're new and you're kind of dropping in in the middle, we're, we're in a series, and, and yet I believe that what God has for us, it, it, it's, it doesn't need the context, right? The context can help, uh, but God's got a word for you from his word. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 tonight. Last week, uh, the, the idea that we really grappled with was this idea of kingdom work, Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4. And, and what we're going to see tonight is that kingdom work is most effective when it's championed by kingdom leaders, and so we're going to kind of pivot from the work that Nehemiah is about to really see the heart and the character of who Nehemiah was as a leader. Now, whenever somebody starts talking about leadership, I know part of the room kind of just goes dim because you go, I'm not a leader. This doesn't apply to me. And I want to challenge that notion because what I believe is that leadership is influence. And if you are in a relationship of any kind with any person, you have leadership. Uh, If you parent a child or children, you have leadership. If you teach in a classroom, you have leadership. If you play on a team or you work on a staff, you don't have to be the top dog. If you interact with other people, you have influence. And if you have influence, you have leadership. And so the question is not, am I a leader? The question is, what type of leader am I? We do not have to look far into our world to see that the planet that we are living on right now could really use better leadership. There are not many places you can go in the world today to find stellar leaders, not in very many churches, not in very many organizations, not in very many spheres of politics. Leadership uh, is struggling in the world today, no question. But I believe not only does the world need better leaders, the world needs different kind of leaders. We don't need people who just get smarter and and read more books and go to more conferences so that they can be more successful. The world is desperate for a different kind of leader. The world is in need of kingdom leaders. And so we're going to dive into Nehemiah chapter 5 and look at these first six verses. We're going to see what kingdom leadership looks like. Uh, Follow along. We'll also have it on the screen here. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat to keep alive. And then there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were others who said, we have borrowed money uh, for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And Nehemiah says in verse 6, And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. 
what, what I want to see here and what I want to show you is last week we had five points on kingdom work. The fourth of those points was this, that kingdom work invites opposition. And when we dive into chapter five, we're going to see Nehemiah encounter a challenge, a new challenge, a unique challenge that he's not yet faced before. Now, what the people of Israel are doing is they're returning to Jerusalem. Many had already returned to Jerusalem. The Persian Empire has basically invited them back from with the Babylonians, you know, sending them away. So the Persian king says, hey, you guys can come and live in Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem they're living in is not the Jerusalem that they longed for. Uh, the temple is in shambles. The wall is uh, a pile of rubble. The people are disheartened and discouraged. And so Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem to lead this kingdom work and to be a kingdom leader for the people of Israel. But in chapter 4, especially, we start seeing some opposition to Nehemiah's leadership and the kingdom work that God has called him to. It begins as outsiders who are trying to stop the work with mockery and with threats. But then it moves internal with people who very simply weren't willing to do the work. They weren't necessarily antagonistic, but they were the people that should have been doing the work that said, this isn't really for us. External opposition, internal opposition. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5 is something a little different. It's a challenge that Nehemiah as a leader has to face. Here's the point I want to make from this part of the, the scripture. Not everyone who cries out is opposition. Uh, some of them are opportunity. When, when you're trying to do something, whether it be in business or in church or any other sphere of life, you're going to have people that are trying to stop the work. You're going to have people that aren't willing to do the work. But you're also going to find people who discover things that aren't right within the organization or the church or the family. That's not opposition. It's opportunity. Nehemiah recognized this, that, that, that the people that were bringing him this problem, they weren't the problem. This was an opportunity to unearth what was going on in his city that he's now leading so that he could bring something good out of it. By the way, this is the same thing that happens in Acts chapter 6. I've mentioned this before. This great work of God, now we're in the New Testament, the book of Acts, the church is planted. This great work of God is happening. People are being saved by the thousands. They're breaking bread in their homes. It's turning things upside down. People are being healed. Everything is going great. And then we get to chapter 6. And some women who are widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. And they bring the problem to the apostles. It becomes the catalyst for the apostles to organize a group of individuals called deacons who would care for the needs of the poor. So, so they did the same thing in the New Testament, what Nehemiah recognized in the Old Testament, that this is an opposition, this is opportunity, and we need to do this better. So I want to ask this question, how do we learn to see the opportunity in what can sometimes look like opposition? The answer is our first principle for tonight, principles of kingdom leadership. Number one, kingdom leaders are moved by what moves the heart of God. What's happening in Nehemiah 5, because it, you know, there's a lot going on, there's three different groups of people complaining, but let me kind of put it in this nutshell. The poor among the people of Israel, the poor among the Jewish people, were having to borrow money from the wealthy, and those who were lending the money were extracting interest to the point that those very individuals uh, could not pay their debts, they were selling off their homes and even their own children were being sold into slavery to recover money to pay off their wealthy brothers and sisters, other Jewish people. 
Now, when I was in college, I, I, I want to share a little bit about, because when we talk about slavery, we, unfortunately, in America, uh, slavery means something that it didn't mean then. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of a hot-button deal, right? And so I want to talk about what slavery was in the Old Testament. Slavery in the Old Testament was primarily a temporary arrangement for someone who needed to pay off debt, right? So, so this wasn't ownership of a human being. This wasn't uh, that level of evil and atrocity that we've known here in the United States. This was a temporary arrangement, and yet this was happening among the Jewish people themselves. So I was in college. I wrote this uh, 20-page paper on slavery in the ancient Near East. And yes, it was as fun as it sounds. <laughs> and yes, I procrastinated till the night before, but I did some of the work ahead of time. And, and, and what I discovered was that, in, interestingly, not only that, that slavery then was primarily temporary. And part of the reason I say that is, there are people that go, man, I can't believe the Bible because the Bible never even condemns slavery. And I would say, well, <laughs> it's dealing with something very, very different. There is no question that the arrangement that was happening in much of the Western world for several hundred years was absolutely the kind of thing that uh, Scripture condemns. So, so I, I make that point intentionally. But, but here's the other thing. As I was studying for this uh, paper and, and I was grappling with the Old Testament law, the Torah, you know, so we're looking at like Deuteronomy and that, that kind of thing. There's something that continued to appear in the Scriptures that I'd never realized in reading those books of the Bible. And it was this, it actually appears five times just in Deuteronomy, that God says to the people as he's giving them the law, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Why would God continually, as he's giving laws and rules to the people of Israel, why would he continually remind them, hey, you were once slaves in Egypt? Here's why. That reality was to change the way they interacted with one another and the other nations they were to understand that they had once been the oppressed, they had once been the enslaved, and because of that, they were to treat people differently. God commanded it and demanded it from them. In fact, Nehemiah 5 verse 6, when it says that their outcry was great, it's the very same word that is used of the Israelite people when they were slaves in Egypt and cried out to the Lord. But here's the problem. Now it's not other nations enslaving them. It's their own people. And I want you to see what Nehemiah's response is to this, his emotional reaction. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard these words. I was very angry. Now, I've talked a little bit about emotion from here and about anger, and, and the, the truth is we have a skewed understanding of this emotion as it relates to God. Did you know that? Here's why, in, in, in my humble opinion, I, I may be wrong. A lot of us grew up only seeing God as a God of anger. Because of the family we were in or the church that we were raised in, we felt like we had to walk on eggshells with God or he was going to like strike us dead. And it was liberating to learn that God is uh, slow to anger and abounding in love and steadfast kindness. That's what the Old Testament says over and over again. And, and then we experienced the mercy of Jesus and the invitation to know God personally. And it was this wonderful thing to be lost in the beauty of the love of God. But in that, there are some who have decided that, man, God doesn't even get angry anymore. They're, God's just He's like your grandfather. You know, you just go and sit in his lap all the time. And, and I struggle with this. I struggle with this because here's the truth. A God who isn't angry is a God who doesn't care. I, I mean, when you look at what's going on in the world and the injustice in our world, 
You think God's not angry? I was driving on I-4 one time. There's a billboard up in the Winter Park area. I don't know the church, and I'm, even if I did, I wouldn't tell you their name. But the, the billboard says, God is not angry. I just drove past that and went, man, I hope he is. I hope he is. I hope God is angry about the things I'm angry about. Now, now I hope he responds differently, right? But if God isn't angry, then God doesn't care. See, for God, I believe that anger and compassion are two sides of the same coin, right? If there is anything that moves you toward compassion, when you see people who are oppressed, when you see injustice, the other side to that coin is it should make you angry that there are unjust and oppressive people and institutions in the world. So anger and compassion can go together. Now, there's something in our world, there's an expression called compassion fatigue. Anybody heard of that expression? Compassion fatigue. It points to the fact that, that we have never been more exposed to suffering in the world than we are today. We know the, the wars that are going on around the world. We know the, the atrocities that are happening in, in places where there's corrupt governments oppressing their people, where there's genocide, the, the things that are happening in our inner cities, which are just a mess. And, and we know about all of this suffering. And the paradox is this, the more our exposure to suffering goes up, the more our empathy for those suffering goes down. Compassion fatigue. We learn to just kind of tune it out. Several years ago, there was a horrific genocide happening in a part of the world called Rwanda in Africa. And a movie came out shortly after that called Hotel Rwanda. There was a scene in that movie. I would show you it, but I would be violating copyright issues. So I'm just going to kind of demonstrate the conversation that happened. In the movie, Paul, who's this real-life person, uh, was a hotel owner in Rwanda who was sheltering people from genocide. And, and, and over time, this was learned about by different parts of the world, including the United Nations, and a team was sent, a team of journalists, to, to, to report on what was happening there. This is all true. And in the movie, this person, Paul, uh, is in a scene with a guy named Jack, who's, who's part of this journalistic team. He's the cameraman. And th this is the dialogue that they have together. Paul says this, I am glad that you've shot this footage and that the world will see it. It's the only chance we have that people might intervene. Jack responds, yeah, and if no one intervenes, it's still a good thing to show. Paul, how can they not intervene when they witness such atrocities? Jack, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible, and go on eating their dinners. I was chilled to the bone when I watched this for the first time. That, that we would learn that there are people made in the image of God in, in our world, on our planet, who, who are being slaughtered, who are being treated so unjustly, who are losing their lives, and we go, man, that's so terrible, and go right back to our lives. See, I believe kingdom leaders are moved by what moves the heart of God. They can't just go back to their dinner. Not when they see things that call them to action, that they're moved in the way that God would be moved by it. Kingdom leaders remain sensitive to the pain of individuals, not just the objectives of the organization, right? And this is what I mean by the difference between better leadership, you know, companies make more money, you know, the, the stocks go up, uh, the people in the workplace are a little happier, better leaders, I'm talking about different leaders, leaders who value the individual, not just the organization, leaders who are willing to set aside time to deal with the hurts and the pains of their people, right? This is what the world is craving, kingdom leadership. And this is the kind of leadership that Jesus demonstrated. 
Do you remember in John chapter 11 when Jesus' close friend Lazarus has died? And Jesus shows up and Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's one of the most incredible stories in the Gospels, John chapter 11. But before he does that, he takes time to interact with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And in verse 35, the shortest and yet one of the most profound verses in all the Bible, we see this. Jesus wept. He slowed down. He felt the pain of his friends. He knew what the end outcome was. He knew what the objective ultimately would be. But as a kingdom leader, as the son of God, he slowed down enough to feel the pain of those who were suffering and he wept with them. This is what Paul calls us to in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. He says, brothers, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? It was to love one another to love one another, to bear one another's burdens. When you bear somebody's burdens, you're taking on a little bit of the suffering that they feel. And kingdom leaders are willing to do that. But not just to be moved emotionally. Kingdom leaders get beyond that. Kingdom leaders are moved to action. Look, look at what Nehemiah does in verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. Again, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are extracting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are l lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this extracting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting from them. Verse 12, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Let's stop there for a second. Here, we're going to see the second principle of kingdom leadership that Nehemiah demonstrates, and it's this. Kingdom leaders prioritize the needs of the marginalized. Another way to say this is kingdom leaders demand justice. Now, we're about to learn as we continue to read the passage in a moment that Nehemiah at this point has begun serving as the governor of Judah. So he is the man in charge. He's the shot caller. He's the one to make a difference. But in that position, notice what Nehemiah does. He does not let the work become more important than the people. I mean, God's called him to a great work. It's a kingdom work, but he does not let the pressing needs of the project surpass the needs of the people. And he also doesn't do this, and this is so important. He also doesn't let his position inoculate him from the suffering of others. Nikki and I were talking earlier this week, um, not out of what I was going to be preaching on, but it ended up being so um, relevant to it. We were talking about the fact that, that one of the problems we have in the world today is when you're a part of an organization, and it can be any organization, including a church, one of the ways that you advance is by not rocking the boat. You may or may not know this, but people like the status quo, and when you are the person in power, you really like status quo. And so what happens over time is, is the intern 
who doesn't rock the boat, who plays by the rules of the organization, uh, becomes the associate. And the associate becomes a coordinator, and the coordinator a director, and the director a... And, and pretty soon, this person is in the room where big decisions are happening, and he or she has learned the way I advance is by making these people feel like they're doing everything just great, Right? Like, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to hurt any egos. I'm going to play by the rules of the organization, and that's where I get ahead. Next thing you know, we have CEOs. We have uh, people who are political leaders. We have pastors who have learned to benefit from the privileges of leadership and not risk their influence by actually leading. Over the summer of 2020, um, I had a conversation as we as a nation were grappling and really as a world grappling with injustices that were happening in the black community and, and everybody was, was, you know, at some place on this trying to figure this thing out and, and I had been pretty direct in speaking out about those issues and how important it is as the church that we, that we make sure that justice is happening, that, that we make sure that lives are valued, that people are held accountable. And it got me into a conversation with a woman who was a, a local Christian TV host. And she sent me an email. And she said, Chris, I need you to know that because of something I posted on my Facebook page, I was uh, expressing sympathy for somebody who had lost their life, but, but my producers did not like what I put. Um, and, and she's like, I just need you to know that because we had talked about it. She's like, I, I'm, I'm there. That's what's happening. And I said to her, in my email response, I said, I'm so glad that you've emailed me on this and I understand that tension, but let me just challenge you with this. It is those of us who have influence, those of us who are in front of cameras and in front of people, if we are silent, nothing will ever change. And I want to graciously encourage you to risk your place and your position by continuing to speak out for those who are marginalized. I didn't know this, but I found out about six weeks later that she had been pulled off the air, right? This, this, is not, this is why I say different, not better. This isn't a recipe for how to have a better whatever. I'm talking about kingdom leadership. I'm talking about the heart of God uh, demonstrated through the heart of his people. So let's bring this to us. Let's apply it here to this congregation. Kingdom leadership sometimes is going to look like addressing within your organization the inequities between pay of men and women. You might go, but I'm not the CEO. Okay, but if you learn that that's happening, challenge it. Or, or maybe it's a, a lack of commitment to diversity, an organization that goes, hey, we really think diversity is a great thing, but we only hire people that look like, and I would encourage you to challenge that. Or, or maybe in a business sense, a company where profit first practices are the thing, right? Profit over people. And you go, we, we got to turn this around. We got to change this. And you may not like that I'm bringing this to your attention, but this is wrong. This is unjust. These are all demonstrations of kingdom leadership that prioritizes the needs of the marginalized. Kingdom leadership that demands justice. Here's what I want you to know. The reason that God gave you a seat at the table is to advocate for the ones who don't have a seat at the table. You're not there just to make more money. You're not there just to increase your platform, whatever that may be. The reason, if you have a seat at the table, if you have a voice, the reason God has given it to you is so that you can do this very thing. Advocate for the ones who aren't at the table. It may be as simple as just acknowledging, hey, there's somebody missing from this table. <laughs> why, is, why is this, right? 
The reason God gave you a seat at the table is to advocate for the ones who don't have a seat. This is biblical. I want to make sure you know that. This is biblical. This is what Nehemiah did. This is also what Solomon in the book of Proverbs called for. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. I think we have this in the, in the NIV version here. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is Solomon, who is a king, talking to men who are his sons, otherwise princes, right? Like, th this is people of power and privilege saying, we've got to do this. We've got to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. The ones who don't sit on the throne, the ones who don't have the crown, the ones who, as Nehemiah says, are powerless to help it. It's our job to change it. It's our job to advocate for them. Kingdom leaders are willing to risk loss of influence, reputation, to advance the cause of equality and justice in their world. And I, I want to cast a vision for you of what this can look like. Go, go back to Nehemiah 5.13. I intentionally left off the very end of that. Let me read it now. And all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people all did as they promised. When we start getting into the conversation about using our influence and, and taking risk, I, I think the natural question that comes to our mind, it's an unspoken question, we don't say it out loud, but the question is what would happen or what could happen if they don't respond well? Whatever this group of people or this decision maker is, what if I bring this to their attention and they don't like it? I, I could be you know, uh, reprimanded, I, I could be disinvited from important meetings, I could be terminated. That's kind of how we think. But let me offer you this question instead. What could it look like if they do? What could it look like if kingdom people, kingdom leaders began to leverage their influence to bring about change to where the people of, uh, in the story of Nehemiah said, hey, we're going to do as, as you say, and they all kept their promise. In other words, that you could leverage influence to make a difference in the spheres that God has called you to. So we're going to move to the third principle here. If the, the first two leadership uh, principles that I've given you, I think being moved by the things that move the heart of God, prioritizing the needs of the marginalized, that's going to get you maybe 90% of the way to being a kingdom leader. I'm going to give you the last 10%, and I think it's probably the hardest 10%. So get ready for this. You ready? The third principle of kingdom leadership is that kingdom leaders do not demand their own rights. Go back to the passage, Nehemiah 5, verses 14 to 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be, to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people." Remember for my good, O oh God, all that I have done for this people. I want you to see in this passage the, the heart of Nehemiah, and it's the heart of kingdom leaders. It's humility, it's self-control, it's compassion. So different from the leadership we see in our world. 
where you scrap and scrape and climb the ladder to get ahead, kingdom leaders are willing to take a back seat. Kingdom leaders are willing to allow others to advance, not only going beyond their rights, which is what we see a lot of leaders do, right? They exceed their rights. Kingdom leaders don't even get up to the line. They leave things on the table. And this is different leadership. Because when the world sees God's people going, yeah, I could advance if I made this decision, but I'm choosing not to do that because it's not ethical. I, I could get a huge promotion if, if I would just stay quiet, but I'm choosing to speak because this is unjust. Kingdom leaders are willing to not only not exceed their rights, but not to make full use of them. And notice why Nehemiah does it. Verse 15, he says, I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Fear of God. One of my concerns with the social justice movement is that it is not built on the fear of God. And so the beginning and end of it are the good of people, which is a good thing to aspire to. Unfortunately, the question becomes, what is good? <laughs> Who's the judge here? What we're talking about is, is biblical justice. And Nehemiah understood that, that what happens in the horizontal must be impacted first and foremost by the vertical, the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And he said, the reason I didn't make full use of my rights is because I fear God. I recognize that, yes, I'm a governor, but more importantly, I'm a servant of God. He's in charge. I will answer to him. And kingdom leaders understand that principle. Like a man named Paul, who used to be called Saul, who in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15, says this, I have made no use of any of these rights. He, he lists a whole bunch of things that I'm not going to read for you. He says, all the things as an apostle that I could do, other apostles are doing it. But he said, but I didn't make use of any of these rights. And here's why, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. The question is, what are you chasing? Kingdom leaders chase the heart of God. Kingdom leaders prioritize the salvation of people. Paul said, I, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to not make use of my rights because if more people get into God's kingdom, it's worth it. Kingdom leaders do not demand their own rights. Simon Sinek in his book, uh, Leaders Eat Last, which I love books that you can just kind of see the title and you get it. It's like, I get that principle, right? But, but this is what Simon Sinek says in Leaders Eat Last. He says, the true price of leadership is the willingness to place the needs of others above your own. Great leaders truly care about those they are privileged to lead, and they understand that the true cost of the leadership privilege comes at the expense of self-interest. I want to close with this question. What is a right that may be hindering you from becoming a kingdom leader? You go, well, well I'm allowed to do this. It's not, not condemned, it's not prohibited. I, I, can, I can make that decision, I can accumulate that wealth, whatever it may be, but is that hindering you from leveraging your influence for kingdom purposes? Kingdom leaders are willing to step back from that to advance the cause of Christ. Kingdom leaders follow the example of Jesus. I, I wanna end with this passage and a couple thoughts. Philippians 2 verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
We don't need to look any further to see kingdom leadership than the life of Jesus. And our job, again, is not to excel at being leaders. It's to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus is our model. He is our aim. He is what we strive to be like. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the opportunity just to hear from your word tonight. God, I thank you um, for this congregation of people. Lord, we are so different. We have different backgrounds, different experiences. We, we have different opportunities. We're placed in different spheres of influence. God, I pray that every single one of us would leverage our influence as kingdom leaders, God, to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you do in us what only you can do? God, would you do the work you've called us to? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.